Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon and welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Fernacvia Florica is the Vice President of the Digital Communication Network. He concurrently works at the Consultant for U.S. Agency for Global Media, and he is the Creative Director of Radio for Europe, Belarus Service. Mr. Villasorca is a frequent speaker and advocate for democracy and personal freedom in post-Soviet countries. An expert in Russian disinformation, he recently published research on the Kremlin-backed media, Russian Orthodox Church, and think tanks as the Kremlin's soft power. In 2014, after the Ukrainian Revolution of Dignity, he launched a nationwide campaign promoting the national identity of Belarus. Before that, he served as a leader of the youth wing of the Belarusian Popular Front, BNF. His work in Belarus has been chronicled by documentary filmmakers and recognized by many international organizations, including the National Endowment for Democracy, Freedom House, and Open Society Foundations. Mr. Viasorka was the first Vaclav Havel Fellow for Radio for Europe under Havel's personal recommendation. Mr. Viasorka has earned degrees from American University in Washington, D.C. and Warsaw University in Poland, and he also studied at Georgetown University and European Humanities University. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Uh, good afternoon. I'm very glad to be here and thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, so today I'm going to speak about uh, Belarus, about the current events, about uh, the last week, um, about uh, what will happen if Russia will take over. Um, please uh, prepare your questions. I think we'll have 20-25 uh, minutes. I will be happy to address, address them. So, but I will begin you know, with a disclaimer that uh, I think nobody really understands what is going on there and behind the scenes. So, all the observations and all the ideas uh, are, uh, can be uh, only speculations. So, today we'll be given lesser numbers than usually I'm given during the lectures and more uh, my personal um, understanding of the processes and trends uh, inside. So why we speak today about it? Uh, we speak because uh, American ambassador will come back and that's the result of the series of events, uh, sometimes good, sometimes bad, uh, sometimes unclear what, um, and also because of the recent scandal, conflict, uh, competition uh, between Russian government and Belarus government uh, related to the future of the Union State, Belarus and Russian Union State. So everything began last December, all the Russian media suddenly began addressing the question, so, so what happened to the Union State? Why, why, why we are still living separately? 
Um, they uh, play with these tax maneuvers. Uh, wanted uh, they were expected to get compensation for uh, cheaper hydrocarbons that Belarus received from Russia for many many years. Uh, later, Lukashenko said that you will receive nothing from us because we have pride. Later, Ambassador Babich began the large tour around Belarusian cities, claiming that Belarus is a Russian territory. Um, uh, next few months, uh, there was some conversation about um, can Babich be the politician in Belarus, and uh, uh, Babich was uh, fired and left his post in Minsk. Uh, there were speculation in the media that it's not just uh, like this, it's not because Lukashenko was angry with Babich, Russian ambassador in Belarus, but because um, there was some other deal made behind the scenes. And the latest developments are uh, plans on deeper integration linked to the Russian newspaper Kommersant a few days ago, and Belarus lifted uh, the number of ambas embassy diplomats of the United States and uh, promised to allow American ambassador to uh, be back, uh, to come back to Minsk. So that's like the very short, brief overview of the latest events. Uh, I have the big hope that all these events mean that something happening and uh, when something happens, even if the events are chaotic, there is a chance for good forces and for right things to happen and change the trend. Because the trend for many years was not towards Belarus independence, but opposite, towards Russian dependence and control over the country. So, day before yesterday, Under Secretary of the United States visited Kurapate. Kurapate is the large cemetery, the place where uh, thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of uh, Belarusians, Poles, Uh, Lithuanians, Ukrainians, Jews were killed during Stalin purges. So this is the place, the symbol of Stalin's communist repressions in Belarus. And this is the place very often ignored by foreign diplomats. Instead of going uh, to, for example, Bolton, uh, former national security advisor, he didn't go to Kurapate. He went to another memorial, um, to uh, Jewish victims during the Second World War, despite uh, Belarusian civil society asked um, American and Western diplomats to visit Kurapate. But under secretary, the day before yesterday, visited this place. And this place uh, was always ignored by Lukashenko for many, many years until recently. And this place is hated by Russian propagandists, media and politicians because they believe that uh, this is a fake and no one was really killed there. And after this happened, another secretary uh, put flowers uh, near this cross. Social networks began comparing this event to 1994, when Bill Clinton legitimized this place for the first time by, visited, by visiting this place uh, when, he, when he and his wife, Hillary Clinton, visited Minsk for the first time. So, um, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic because of this change and because of this hope and that's the first time when Belarusian activists and not only but Belarusian mass audience began discussing American role and American influence for Belarus culture. And I must say that according to 
um, opinion polls made in 2017-18, Belarus' attitude towards the United States improved since 1998-1999 when the first conflict and the relationship uh, with the United States deteriorated. Despite the fact that U.S. Embassy and public diplomacy has very limited presence in Belarus. Countries like Egypt or Afghanistan, where millions, dozens of millions of dollars were invested in public diplomacy, and the relationship and attitude to the United States and Western values did not improve, and Belarus, which cost nothing, and the relationship constantly improving on both sides, societal and elites. So, look at this guy. So, this is the person, it's Lukashenko, president of Belarus, who is ruling the country for 25 years. He managed to balance for many, many uh, years um, between West and the East. Uh, we often joke that in the winter Lukashenko is a friend of Russia and in summer he is a friend of the West. So when he needs, uh, cheap, uh, when he needs a new contract for gas, then he goes to Moscow. When he needs IMF and World Bank loans, he invites... Uh, he invites uh, uh, he's, he's trying to invite Western politicians and American congressmen. Basically, um, what attracts him on both sides? On the Western side, the pure, pragmatic, economical, financial interests. No doubts that he does not affiliate himself with Western values. For many, many years, he was trying to build in Belarus better Russia, with better roads, with better colhoses, with better... Uh, officials with better bureaucracy uh, and uh, with, of course, better control. And uh, it's it, and after so many years, he will not give up this model. Yes, he's trying to transform this model to make it like more efficient, more modern, more uh, funny, and to pack it somehow uh, in more or less modern way. But he doesn't give up give up, you know, his uh, his initial plans, values, and ideas. And he affiliated himself with the uh, Soviet glory and great Russian past, for sure. And this is what he's seeking, and this is what attracts him in the East. Not only uh, cheap prices for gas and oil, which is obviously true, but of course he still believes, I think so, as uh, the same as he expected and hoped in ninetieth to get a new position, a new role in this new political unit, a new political creation, or perhaps statehood, Belarus-Russian Union. And these discussions, conversations on Russian media, on Telegram channels about the future of Russia, what will happen to Putin, they always include Lukashenko. Sometimes Lukashenko is promised the role like the honorary president of the new Russian-Belarusian state, Sometimes he is offered the role like the special prime minister when Putin will, will remain the president of the new statehood. But I think that uh, Lukashenko's ambitions are remaining power and uh, he still invests in his popularity in Russia. So, hybrid mentality of the ruling elite. Uh, that's um, not a unique thing for Belarus. Many post-Soviet states, especially Central Asian dictatorships, they're trying to do that. In contrast to Azerbaijan, which managed to build a totally new system, new model. So basically he 
Lukashenko, he perceives himself as a Soviet man, but, uh, uh, but, but the same time he was pushing for many years the narrative that the Russian government betrayed the Soviet um, ideology. But what happened recently? New Russian ideology uh, promoted, uh, introduced after occupation of Crimea, it began including Soviet elements again. So before 2014, Putin allowed Solzhenitsyn's book, Archipelag Gulag and all others in the school program. And all his um, narratives, they were exclusive, they just were uh, criticizing um, Soviet, Soviet past, repressions and everything. But after 2014, Putin managed to create a hybrid model of Soviet and Russian things, where Soviet past was the past of the evolution of from Russian Empire model to the modern Russia thing. So modern Russia includes both Soviet past and Russian Empire past. And then Lukashenko lost monopoly for this concept as the savior, unique savior of the uh, of the Soviet model. So why? Um, why Belarus is under threat, why takeover is possible, and why the Russian influence is so strong. So, national tradition, language, was included from education system, from the government, from the mass media for many, for many years. The ruling elite didn't have strong feeling of the belonging to Belarus, only until recently we began observing the process of westernization of elites when the majority of uh, new appointees to ministerial and bi-ministerial position uh, began uh, where, where from the Western Belarus. And it's interesting, the majority of the new appointees, they uh, had um, they had um, education in Belarusian universities. Comparing to officials, compared to officials in the 90s and beginning of 2000s, when ministers usually had uh, Russian experience, Russian uh, education and usually Russian military service behind them in their biographies. So now we call it indigenization of Belarusian elites. And desovietization never happened in Belarus. And that makes this uh, system unique in the Soviet, uh, post-Soviet space. Uh, it didn't, it even didn't start. Only now we see some signals, some very small, tiny uh, events that can be called desovietization, but it's not on the statehood level yet. So uh, today I'll be speaking about two uh, contradictory processes, Russification and Westernization. And when I speak about Russification, I also mean resovietization. So they are not exclusive, because currently when we speak about Russification, it includes a lot of Soviet elements, especially ideological narratives from Soviet past. When um, five years ago, uh, Russification and all the um, school books, literature publications, they were speaking only about the Catherine the Great and its role for Belarus as the savior rebuilder. Now, all the Russian and pro-Russian media, they often address Stalin as another hero compared to Catherine the Great. I will give you a few examples later. So, Belarus society exists in the cultural, linguistic and worldview of the Russian space. 
that's um, uh, that, that that is made by um, uh, by monopoly of the information space by Russian media and by Russian social networks primarily. Even um, even the activization of uh, foreign media or surrogate media like Radio Free Europe or Bielsat TV on social networks, it doesn't change the fact that the majority of population use Vkontakte and Adnoklasniki, Russian uh, social networks, which are part of Russian uh, propagandist uh, machine. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll skip it. And I will begin... Um, so, uh, Sovietization and Russification part from the story from Russia. Uh, because this story was very loud uh, and um, discussed in Belarus, it was discussed in Estonia, it was discussed in, even in Hungary, and worldwide the um, professor in Odmurtia, Russian region, he burned himself. And um, uh, he was an activist and promoter of the Udmurt language. And uh, when he burned himself, he has the poster uh, on, in his hands, if my language dies tomorrow, then I'm ready to die today. And that was the action against the Russification policy in, in uh, Russia. And unfortunately, the situation with Belarusian language is very similar, because uh, despite uh, the formal constitu constitutional right equal right for Belarusian language to... In Belarus, it's still uh, discriminated on the level of uh, government officials, bureaucracy, and education system. And it was not always like this. In the beginning of the 20th century, Belarus language was uh, dominant in the country. Almost 90% of population was speaking Belarusian. It was in schools, it was in um, book publishing, and it was the same in magazine and brochures. So only there were like few waves of Russification in 20th century, uh, which, um, which we have to uh, admit. That's the 30s, after the, in, after the Karenizatsia policy, indigenization policy by Stalin, there was the wave of Russification of 30s, when intelligentsia of many Soviet republic uh, uh, was killed. And the second wave is already after 1990s, when Lukashenko came to power, and he began this Russification, Russification again, by eliminating basically Belarusian language um, in general. And for now, we have only 291 students in Belarus um, that, have, that have full um, education, all the classes taught in Belarusian language. So that's the sad truth. And that's 103 times less than in 1919, when the Soviet Union collapsed. So you can see that Russification began in Soviet time, but it continues, and it continued during Lukashenko's rule before 2014-15, when Crimea happened. And when Lukashenko, he reconsidered, for sure, his position regarding Belarus identity and language. Um, the designer of the Russification, Sovietization, uh, is, not, uh, is not alive anymore, and he is from 19th century, and I think uh, Muravyov, uh, governor, um, general governor, he described very well how Russian soft power, uh, Russian public diplomacy should work.
and many of these tools uh, is still used. You know, you have to use bureaucracy, school, and religion, orthodoxy, and in combination with the military threat, they are given the enormous power for you to control smaller societies and neighboring countries. And Muravyov is still alive in Belarusian uh, uh, mentality. That's a leaflet from this year. So um, some activists in the regions, I don't know whom, they just put uh, two person, per, per, per persons on the leaflet. Uh, the first one on the left is Kastus Kalinowski, whose remains were found uh, recently in Vilnius uh, uh, on the Gdeminas um, uh, Hill and will be reburied in November, in the beginning of November in Vilnius. Uh, he, is a national, he is considered as the national hero of Belarus and used as the national hero and symbol for opposition. And the second one is Muravyov, who is ideologist and promoted by Lukashenko's ideologists and by pro-Russian organizations, telegram channels and media. So basically people still, you know, compare two heroes of 19th century. So this, this battle is not from today. This battle began 150 years ago and it continues. It continues in uh, a street protest. That's Immortal Battalion. That's the um, uh, action organized every year on the May 9th, uh, Victory Day uh, in um, post-Soviet countries, when Sputnik, with all pro-Russian organizations, Cossacks initiatives, they go to the streets. They, are, um, they have uh, portraits of uh, grandfathers, veterans uh, who were participating in the Second World War. And, um, yeah, idea, idea is good, it's not political, but it's always about weaponizing the idea. Besmertny Polk began as a very good idea of Russian opposition activists, actually, about 10-15 years ago, close to the liberal groups that want to um, immortalize and commemorate um, the veterans, but it was used by Russians of power as the tool in post-Soviet Republic, you know, to, to, to gather all the Russian forces together. Similar to Masha and the Bear, that's another case. Masha and the Bear was not created as the Russian imperialistic power to destroy democracies and uh, occupy um, Belarus, Moldova, or the United States of America. But uh, Russia and the Bear was used uh, in a very smart way uh, by Russian embassies, Rossotrudnichestva, Ruski Mir foundations worldwide, because no one loves Putin. Okay, not many people love Putin, but Masha... It's another, it's, it's, it's like the cover, it's the beautiful mask for Russian diplomacy. And they put uh, Masha's portraits on the Russian embassy, on the Russian cultural centers. All the events are happening with the leaflets with Masha portraits. And Masha statues are in every city. I saw it almost every city in Belarus where I visited. So they, Masha was weaponized and became power of the public diplomacy, the same as this immortal battalion. And this is another guy, that's one of the opposition leaders, like from 10, 15 years ago, who suddenly switched the side. He and the other 20, 30 opposition leaders suddenly began attending immortal battalions protests, criticizing Belarusian pro-Western oppositions, and uh, going to Orthodox Church paramilitary uh, camps 
um, speaking to kids uh, um, who, who are just like 15, 16 years old kids, you know, who are attending this uh, this uh, meetings and, and camps. So um, it's it's about weaponization. So every tool, even every cultural phenomenon, you can weaponize. That's another candidate to uh, to Belarusian parliament on these elections. She is a big fan of Stalin, and she her main narrative at these elections, which will happen this this fall, is that Belarus is not does not exist. So Belarus is the fake country, and she she is okay, and she has supporters. And uh, Russian organizations, they support her, Sputnik is given tribune to her. So basically all this infrastructure created by Russia in Belarus, and not only in Belarus, it, it is used and it is given to these political figures. Fortunately, not so many of them are on the political landscape so far, but it doesn't mean that they will not pop up, they will not emerge um, next year before presidential elections. NKVD appraisal. That's another thing, you know, and I don't know why, because NKVD was not very popular in Belarus. Uh, NKVD, people were killing Belarusian um, men, women, children, they were coming to houses. But people's uh, memory um, always forget about bad things. And suddenly, NKVD uh, uniform became normal thing on Belarusian officers, generals, soldiers on different parades, older veterans and participants of Second World War began wearing this. And minister, former Minister of Internal Affairs, um, Shunievich, uh, he was um, happy and he was, um, he was uh, proud to wear this uniform. So suddenly we, we see the justification of all Nkavede um, repressions, purges and killings. We are just justifying the um, horror, um, 30s, uh, horrible, horrible thirties uh, in Belarusian history. Um, um, nevertheless, we have we had we had consensus since nineties that that was the worst time in Soviet Union. But now this consensus is destroyed, and then Kavade repressions are justified. And people say, yeah, perhaps they killed some some. Good people as well, but in general, their role was positive. Uh, another thing, ah, that's Dzerzhinsky. Dzerzhinsky, creator of um, GPU, later NKVD, that's predecessor of KGB. Actually, Belarus is only one post-Soviet country which still uses uh, KGB uh, acronym uh, to, to for security uh, for special security service. And uh, in uh, regional cities of Belarus, we have uh, opening and erecting, uh, that's 2019, of the um, uh, monuments to Dzerzhinsky Felix and also to Chekisty. Uh, every big city, 100,000 uh, and more uh, population, uh, they have the monument to Chekisty, Cheka, like uh, KGB people. Um, and um, uh, there was a performance by activists to touch them or to make photo with them. And uh, first, the uh, government did not react, but later they began arrested for selfies, photos, and touching these monuments. So they are some kind of sacralizing, sacralized by the government. So Russian influences not only about uh, media, not only about these Cossacks or Orthodox Church, it has also infrastructural uh, dimension. So basically they control 
communications infrastructure, and they control economical infrastructure, and they control service infrastructure. The best example of Uber, Uber Yandex, and it's not only in Belarus. We call it Yandexization of Uber. So they make, they make deals with foreign Western companies that if Yandex is coming to the market, Western company is getting out. So Yandex basically buying exclusive rights for, for the control of a specific territory. And uh, all the countries where Yandex Taxi comes in post-Soviet uh, states, there is no Uber. Or Uber is powered by Yandex, with Yandex Maps, Yandex GPS, and, um, uh, and, and Yandex um, software. Um, organizations that are supporting this are much wider than on, on this scheme. That's uh, my research from 2018. Uh, it should be updated, of course, because many new organizations appeared and I am often, uh, I'm often receiving the messages about new and new organizations. And interestingly, uh, all these organizations are not supposed to live for a long time. They create organizations and after two or three months they destroy this organization. They open the website, regional website, that's sharing all these pro-Russian stereotypes and uh, uh, fake, fake news uh, uh, about the NATO tanks in Minsk hidden in presidential administration or something like this. And later they disappear in news websites. And this strategy is not only in Belarus, it's also in the United States. Um, we all speak here about Sputnik, about Russia today, but uh, recently Facebook stopped almost, how many, 16 large outlets in, on Facebook. Back then, it's the name of the outlet. In the now, something else. So these old outlets, each of them have like 300,000 subscribers, 500,000 subscribers, are part of Russia Today holding. But we here, we don't have opportunity to monitor all these changes, so we are losing track. We see only Sputnik Russia Today, and we feel pretty secure, you know, because nothing, nothing um, bad happens. But the real war, the real competition is happening behind the scenes. It's happening on the pages of the smaller brands. And the same with this organization. Instead of financing the large, big entities, institutions, they finance many, many, many small initiatives. Some of these initiatives are one person only. But that's enough for them. And um, it's much easier. Um, it makes our task to identify them uh, almost impossible. And for Russians, it's much more easier to, to reach very narrow target groups in the specific villages, specific areas, or with specific interests. Uh, I will share the slides later, so you can check them. We just have limited time. So main, uh, main narratives. So as I mentioned, that's a mix, that's a hybrid uh, between Soviet, Russian, and Orthodox values and ideas. So they appeal to emotions. Uh, to nostalgia. And me personally, I put a lot of uh, effort to explain people when I meet them in Belarus and not only that you shouldn't be nostalgic about anything. Nostalgia is used by populists around the world. Nostalgia is one of the um, reasons why um, ultra-right or pro-Russian forces are winning places in democratic parliaments. And this is why Belarusians still support Putin. They believe that Putin will bring them back marozhane, ice cream for 11 kopeik, 
and uh, nice TV show and movies, Приключения Шурика, Операция И. So that's like, that, that sounds like a joke, but that's the sad truth. That then uh, population, especially uh, people in post-Soviet states, they forget uh, quickly about the bad things, and they are very easily manipulated by very simple, clear, um, emotional promises. And, um, yeah, and the combination of this, it makes like the, the cocktail, it's like this, you know, extreme cocktail. So these uh, two examples from Vitebsk regional page, which is getting more and more popular. I don't know who is reading this page on Vkontakte and who is subscribing because it's, um, it's nonsense. Uh, but it finds its uh, readers as well because it's very primitive messages. They're not connected to each other. On the left, you know, we see Putin with the world map, great desert of tolerancy. South America is Venezuela. Uh, Africa is Syria, China is China, uh, Europe is an LGBT caliphate, yeah, <laughs> so that's, uh, that's the vision, you know, and of course young, young Russians, they, young Belarusians and young Ukrainians, Moldovans, all the people susceptible to this information, uh, exposed to this information, of course they are making hi hi ha ha, but on this uh, subconscious uh, level, it lives on this idea, you know, that we can strike back. Empire strikes back. Strikes back. That's the main you know, message and narrative given to young people. Um, and on the right, that's anti-liberal talisman. Yeah, that's like Stalin, uh, who can coexist with orthodox uh, pictures, cartoons, and videos. And Stalin like a um, uh, superhero, like Avengers, like Robocop, or um, what's the name of this guy in the Iron Man? Yeah, Iron Man. Iron Man who will like, um, who has his bad threats as well, but um, traits, but um, he did a lot of good stuff too. And, uh, and that's enough. And who is vulnerable to this uh, influence? Um, young people and seniors. That's the most um, difficult target groups. We don't know how to reach them, how to influence them, how to um, work with them. And the Russians, no. Actually, ISIS knows as well. China is doing great. They launched TikTok application, which became a big thing worldwide. For one year, it became number three social network in the world, TikTok. Now it is used by people 13, 20 years old. Short videos owned by Chinese, but basically it's a Chinese spy uh, equipment, which is gathering your personal data, using it, storage in it, and uh, filtering all the content which you're not supposed to see. So it's impossible to find uh, Hong Kong protest videos on TikTok. Uh, it's impossible to find LGBT videos. We published one video about LGBT parade uh, in, in, in uh, Belstok in Poland, and this video was deleted five minutes later. And you cannot complain because there is no such system like complaining you know, for filtering content. Uh, and seniors. Seniors because they spend a lot of time online. Older people, they are reading articles, they are navigating a lot. So five years ago it, it was different. But now they are the main consumers of fake news, propaganda and disinformation. And uh, we do not have actually normal, good, uh, interesting, engaging content for them. Uh, when I say we, I mean international uh, media, international surrogate media, like Voice of America, Radio for Europe, 
I work for United States Agency for Global Media and we are struggling to create content which will be popular among uh, these people and we didn't manage to find a way. So that's, that's the task and that's the problem, the challenge we have to solve together. Westernization, that's another process which is happening um, concurrently with the Russification. So here, most of these things are made on the societal level. And it's not Lukashenko who began allowing more, he just um, stopped prohibiting many things. Leo Sapieha, the uh, chancellor, chancellor of Grand Duchy of Lithuania, his monument erected in, in Belarus. Uh, Gedimin, the Grand Duke of um, uh, Lithuania, uh, who is also um, the country which is considered uh, in Belarusian um, uh, independent historiography as our pre-state, as the country uh, pre-state common, commonly with Poles, with uh, Ukrainians and with Lithuanians, of course. And uh, Gedimin Monument was erected in um, Lida uh, two weeks ago. Uh, all the money were collected by people through the crowdfunding platforms. And the only thing that government did, did do, they did not prohibit to install, to erect this monument. So that's a big victory and that's the first monument to Duke of Grand Duke of Lithuania on the territory of Belarus. Because before, government authorities are trying to ignore this part of history. According to Lukashenko, Belarus history began or in 1994, when he became the president, or in 1945, when Belarus was... Uh, 1944, let's say, when Belarus was liberated from uh, Nazism. Uh, translation of the train station. You know, you think, oh my God, what's the deal, you know, that's nothing. But you know, the thing that they changed the text from Russian language to Belarusian, for Belarus it's a big thing. It's like legitimization of Belarusian language on the train station. And um, Russians were upset, all the Russian media wrote about it. Um, I don't know why they care so much about the text on the train station, but even translation of this text, it was perceived as the unfriendly act towards, uh, towards Kremlin and, uh, and uh, Russians. So they allowed to celebrate 100th anniversary of Belarus independence uh, 1918, when Belarus People's Republic was announced, along with other uh, Eastern European uh, independences. Uh, he allowed to erect monument to Tadeusz Kostiuszka. That's a Belarusian, American, Australian, Lithuanian, Polish hero. Uh, and... Uh, I know there is a discussion who, who, whom he is more Polish or American or Belarusian. Of course, he's Belarusian. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. He's uh, he's a common here, but he was he was born in Belarus, and uh, uh, his family, his roots, his uh, relatives, his ancestors are um, some of them are living still in Belarus, and that's the first monument to Kostiuszka on the territory of Belarus, which we are very proud of. You know Kostiuszka, you call him Kosciuszko, something like this, which one? But yeah, he's Kostiuszka. Um, and uh, movie translation. I think all of you watched uh, HBO, HBO TV show about Chernobyl. Unfortunately, they uh, cut many scenes uh, from about Minsk and about Belarus. Uh, there was a, uh, it should be the scene when people in Minsk 
were uh, forcibly um, uh, called for the first May protest, like Labor Day protest, and uh, there was a rain, radio radioactive rain that, that time. Unfortunately, it was not in the movie, but the film itself, the TV show, had a huge impact on Belarusians. Uh, it was watched, it was discussed, and uh, I still believe that the movie is the strongest arts uh, to, to um, strongest art, arts ever, and it's stronger than any other um, types of um, art. So Chernobyl in Belarusian language was translated into Belarusian by Austrian A1 telecommunication company. And uh, Austrian telecommunication company, they are on hype, we say, because they realize that now it's a moment of Belarusization. You can do anything in Belarusian and everyone will love you. So what they did, you know, they translated movies in Belarusian language, they make advertising in Belarusian, and everyone is uh, loving them, praising them for this. So Austri thanks to Austrians, we got some, some mass culture translated into Belarusian language. In general, you know, um, many things happened in business. I think business is doing more than uh, embassies in Minsk, more than NGOs, more than cultural initiatives. For example, Latvian company Poles, uh, ice cream producer, um, like uh, White Poles, uh, they produce ice creams, and what they did, they produce ice cream with a taste of corn flour, it's a Belarusian national flour, and they wrote on the package, Long Live Belarus, it's a Belarusian opposition slogan. So they managed to sell 500 or 600,000 ice creams in two weeks, that was like never in history, Belarusians ate so much ice cream, so many Belarusians are buying like 20, 30 and 40, you know, so when, when ice cream was brought to shop, on Twitter, on Instagram, someone wrote about it, all the Minsk went to this shop to buy this ice cream. So that was only for one week. Government was upset, Russians were pissed off. So the next party of ice cream was without any local Belarus and any Belarusian language. But this very simple gesture by a Latvian company, it made a huge impact. And other businesses began um, experimenting with this political hype. Other, other one happened uh, two weeks ago. Elon Musk, you know, American inventor, uh, he, uh, you know, he has cars, Tesla, yeah, you know it, right? Okay, so Lukashenko also has Tesla. And when Lukashenko came to school, high school, kids asked him, so, oh, you had Tesla, how? How, 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 how did it happen? And Lukashenko said, it's Musk uh, gifted me. And uh, someone on Twitter, Tagged Elon Musk and asked Elon, did you gift uh, Tesla to Lukashenko? And Elon Musk answered like in five minutes, uh, oh, no. Belarusian uh, clothes producers next day made the t-shirt with the text, oh, no. <laughs> and that became the symbol of the protest, you know. So they, I don't know how many thousand they sold these t-shirts. But they used to know this moment when all the society discussed, you know, Elon Musk, because it was like Elon Musk protest. Elon Musk proved that Lukashenko is liar. It was a very basic, you know, nothing special, but it was like very simple, a clear message, you know, of the entrepreneur against dictator, to, towards dictator. So people still wearing this t-shirt, 
Uchno and um, some presidential uh, parliamentary candidates, they when they collect signatures now in Minsk downtown, they wear these t-shirts. So it's like a slogan for the campaign. Um, why westernization, Belarusization, is so slow? Because of communication, because of media. First of all, state-run media are still pro-Soviet and rather pro-Russian. All the programs are still in the Russian language. Only one TV channel, the less popular, has programs in Belarusian. And um, it's, it, it, it is like a reservation, like ghetto for Belarusian speakers. The main programs are uh, anti-democratic, anti-Western, anti-American. They discussed uh, the publication on Radio Free Europe website, and they said like, um, so what would you say about this enemies Radio Free Europe? Something like this, but in, in uh, stronger words. So they still perceive West and Western media as the enemy, and they transmit this message to thousands and millions of Belarusians through the main TV channels. All these guys on the right, hopefully, he, uh, luckily he's not on TV anymore. Uh, he was, uh, his main narrative and main story was, uh, most popular episode was about uh, rats, that Americans are so hungry that uh, they, they have to eat rats from the streets. And, um, and this, this episode became very like, symbolic and people still associate you know, the Belarusian state TV channel with his propagandist programs. He's like Belarusian Kisilov Salavyov. Second one, we have the rise of IPTV, OTT, you know, these digital TV uh, services like HBO, Netflix, like you, all the services you have. We have Zala, which belongs to a state monopolist for telecommunications. And uh, 35 or 44 main channels in Zala are Russian. And these Russian channels are with Kiselov shows, Salviov shows, but the most threatening and dangerous are not in uh, use. It is in the uh, TV shows, movies, and comedy club. Comedy club in Russia is very political, and I must say, I think political and anti-Western messages are coded there. And we have to pay particular attention, monitor these informations as well, not only the Kisilov news, because we are always monitoring only the main sources, and we do not go to these um, hidden channels of uh, propaganda. And uh, even Russian liberal media, which are very popular in Belarus, Dost, TV Rain, Kamersant, Novaya Gazeta, for example, Dost, just a recent example, they made uh, the movie about the Brest, Belarusian city in the, Western, in the West, and uh, all this movie is from Russian perspective. Polskie Apany, Polish nobility, Lithuanian warriors, you know, and Russian liberators. So even liberal media, they still perceive Belarus as the part of Russian uh, sphere of influence. And, even, and Navalny, who is um, perceived as the opposition leader in Russia, as the liberal leader in Russia, he also made statements which are um, quite chauvinistic and uh, aggressive and uh, not friendly towards Belarusian identity and language. Um, trends in media space. I know we have limited time, so I switched. I will switch. So what to do? I also will skip it. So, uh, because we have only 10 minutes left. So 
I will skip to this slide. So that's like recommendations, roadmap, scenario. What we can do. So we are now in the very beginning, on the very first stage. We are not on diversification, on belarusization. All these events I showed, I presented, they are very facade. They do not change the system. The values, institution, bureaucracy, education uh, are still the same. That's the hybrid Soviet-Russian um, model. What we need now, when we have US ambassador there, when we have the window of opportunities, no political prisoners, uh, NGOs can gather people and organize demonstrations and gather signatures for, for presidential or parliamentary candidates. We have to use this moment of opportunity and to expand the space for public debate, discussion on the identity, who we are, what we want, what is our real history, when we will be able to expand this space to create NGOs, to uh, create more space for media, not only for creating new media, but for media distribution. And then we can go to the second stage, which is desovietization. Desovietization means uh, symbolic things like uh, toponym toponymies, names of the cities, names of the rivers, names of the streets. They're still full of KGB officers and uh, Soviet Russian heroes. We have to uh, think about education system. Education system, for example, now they signed the agreement with the Bologna process, but Belarusian school system is Soviet, so they are not able to synchronize, to consolidate Bologna demands for the exchanges and the Soviet Belarusian schools. So basically, still Belarusian kids cannot uh, go for exchange to uh, European universities, and it will not be so. So it could be counted as their part, as their education um, process. Diversification. So here we have to decrease the the discourse in mass media and mass culture. We still live in the world of uh, Filip Kirkorov and Ala Pugacheva. Uh, not only we, I think Moldovans. Ukrainians, um, Armenians, Kazakhstani, Kazakhs, they have the same trouble. And in order to decrease, we have to increase the Western presence. For example, Netflix, which is uh, still very niche service in the post-Soviet countries, it doesn't want to translate its uh, TV shows into local languages. Google doesn't support Belarusian, Macedonian, Kazakh, Uzbek, so you cannot promote videos in these languages. So what we have to do in order to diversify, we have to provide alternative, which is the access to the Western culture. And that can be done through the public diplomacy, but also through the collaboration with the private sector. When we are... Um, uh, diversification is also about regional integration. So what Russians and the Kremlin hate when Belarus, Ukraine, Lithuania, Poland work together. So they hate any common celebration, any common events, any common activities. For example, when this uh, battalion named after Ostrovsky, Konstantin Ostrovsky, that's like the military unit by Lithuanians, Ukrainians, was created, Russia was uh, pissed off. Unfortunately, Belarus wasn't involved in the creation of this uh, military unit, but it should be there. 
And these symbolic messages, symbolic things like original integration, they, they, they can serve as the antidote as well. Uh, we have Grand Duke of Lithuania, we have Rzesh Pospolita, we have even longer history of collaboration of the trade, this you know, trade path from the uh, Vikings to Greeks. All this past can be used in order to shape alternative narratives and um, uh, unifying messages to the people of the region. So we, we, we should perceive Belarus as the part of the narrower region, Eastern Central Europe region, and the broader, which is like European Western civilization. Belarusization, which is following next, that's about support national identity. Many people uh, say that why you need Belarus language or culture, you know, we are living in the world of globalization. But globalization really, globalization really works if it unites people, societies with um, established identities. Then globalization works perfectly and then people feel equally. Otherwise, globalization destroys the differences and allows um, uh, stronger nations with stronger identity to manipulate weaker. So it doesn't create equal opportunities. So we need uh, Belarus language in schools, informal and formal uh, education about the culture, about the national hero, and again, cinema. Translation of films, movies, content for kids. For seniors, mass content, computer games, in Belarusian language. We are still our victim of this post-colonial um, uh, past. For example, when the Hollywood is selling licenses to post-Soviet Union, CIS region, this is the region we belong. Belarus doesn't exist as the subject. We belong to CIS, post-Soviet countries. And they sell license to Moscow, and Moscow gives licenses to Minsk for the movies and for, for TV shows. And this is uh, why we don't have access to political content sometimes. And some movies are prohibited in Russia and prohibited in Belarus. This is why. And westernization. This is more about messaging. Economical collaboration, exchanges, visa-free regime. These are non-cultural things, but they can serve as the cultural, psychological um, messages to the society that we are part of the civilization, we are wanted, we are um, expected to be um, members of the European Union, maybe somehow one day. Uh, Eastern partnership is, um, was, not, was not successful because it didn't guarantee any clear membership perspective. And projects like Eastern partnership can be revised and relaunched but promising something bigger, which the nations will, will appreciate. I am open to your questions. We have very limited time. I think maximum 10 minutes, perhaps. So the host will let us have. So, any questions, please? Uh, yes, you know, I spent a lot of time in Ukraine and Georgia, and I noticed with Yandex Taxi, it's available in Georgia. There is no Uber in Ukraine. It's vice versa. Um, I know, as you said, that was a decision from Uber and Yandex, but also what role, if any, do the governments of those countries play in that decision? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Is it um, on what level these uh, negotiations are 
happening usually. I'm sure for Yandexer can make a deal which you cannot uh, refuse. So basically they are buying exclusive right to create monopoly for the specific region and the country. So Lyft or uh, Bolt, smaller players, they are not able to make the global network of the services. And Yandex has enough power, enough resources, enough money to do this. And this is why Yandex just like, eliminates the biggest competitor and other smaller competitors even don't try to go there. So Bolt exists in, in uh, um, Georgia, I think. But in Armenia, for example, GG, the local taxi provider, shared share taxi provider, it almost disappears because it lost to damped, it, it is losing to damped uh, policies uh, of a Yandex taxi. So I think corporations like Google, they can, and I assume they do, collaborate with the Russian government. And because the Russian government gave the deadline and they want foreign companies to host to save uh, all the information in, on Russian servers. This is the same what Chinese did a long time ago. And um, for the last few months I'm fighting with the Google Moscow office for language, for support of smaller languages on YouTube. And they talk to me as uh, general, uh, governor general of Moravyov, you know. We don't care, you know. We don't support. Yeah, you can complain. Yeah, please write us. But we can't do anything about this. And they are making like hee hee ha ha of me. Uh, and unfortunately for me it was, and all the letters to the central office, to California, didn't help. So it made me feel like they are given carte blanche uh, to build special relationship with Kremlin, special deals and special uh, models of collaboration. Because Google doesn't want to lose a Russian market. It's almost, Russian speaking market, it's almost like 250 million users. And um, they are still leading there. Yandex has less than 40% on the market. Google still has more than 55% in Russia. So of course they can make deals. And um, what we can do here, we must uh, take Western companies on our side, Western for-profit companies on our side. Otherwise we will lose. And it's about Facebook, it's about Google, it's about Amazon, it's about Netflix. These companies, they don't care yet. But you see, after hearing in Congress, Mark Zuckerberg changed his mind. And he put a lot of efforts and some money too into social responsibility projects, like Facebook news projects, like uh, news curators, moderation, so I think, you know, if we put more pressure, plus can build some more trustful relationship with them, it could help us a lot to counter and resist uh, Russian revanchism, chauvinism, and also Chinese and, uh, and um, Iran, Iranian malinfluence. Uh, yes, please. Go ahead. Uh, just to add a little perspective, Oh, that's that's a good. Uh, I think uh, that's a very good question. So, um, 
China is publicly present in all spheres of Belarusian life. First of all, they, they got exclusive contract for Bell Telecom um, production and development. It's a monopolist of uh, telecommunications. So they built smart houses now with Huawei equipment. So all the new buildings in Belarus can include smart homes. You know smart homes, you know this video cameras, observation, smart refrigerators and all this stuff. So Huawei got exclusive right to build this infrastructure. So it's not only about smart homes, it's also about uh, 5G. So 5G is tested in Belarus since uh, January. Uh, China has worked in a great stone park of uh, technologies near Minsk airport, where thousands of Chinese um, bright minds are building better future of Belarus. Um, in many people, actually that's my personal observation, uh, many students, young people, they know Chinese language better than English. Because uh, a big part, I think more, I don't know exactly the percentage, but many schools in Minsk, they give China, that they are like China first foreign language uh, model. And it's getting more and more. So I think China perceives Belarus as this um, base, temporary or maybe constantly permanent base uh, for deeper um, involvement or uh, participation in other European countries. I think Chinese President Belarus is the biggest and uh, highest among all uh, post-Soviet countries except Central Asia. Of course, Central Asia is leading this. Kazakhstan is, I think, half of Kazakhstan is already somehow influenced by, by China's capital. So, and also, you know, in, uh, in, um, on this you know, daily things, you know, we see Chinese around us, in the airport, when you arrive, the first you don't see Belarusian or Russian language, you see Chinese language. Uh, so it's, it's, it's strange, it's weird, but we are very close to perceive it as normality. Um, but um, values and this ideological component, uh, I think we must be aware primarily and care about Russians because of the religion, because of the common history. China does not pretend to influence Belarusian identity or to substitute Belarusian language. Their goal is geopolitical economical control, economic control. And this is what they do perfectly worldwide, especially in Africa, developing markets, Southeast Asia, South Asia as well. And, um, and yeah, and then the West doesn't have a um, solution on this, as, as I know. Yes, please. that more content is necessary uh, for this cultural aspect to kind of develop. So kind of how good are the security mechanisms in Belarus? Does this content have to be internal? Does this content have to be external? What could you maybe use? Mention a few things about these parameters of how to get content into Belarus or how to produce it internally. I don't know if you have any thoughts as to... I understood. So, um, so Belarus doesn't produce... Uh, uh, doesn't produce much content, so uh, usually it consumes uh, Russian. When they speak about audiovisual, multimedia content or information, so usually it is consumer of Russian media space. Russian Yandex Zen, Yandex News, um, Megogo, which is Ukrainian, but uh, uh, Megogo is uh, consists as well from, with, with, from consists of 
Russian films, movies and TV programs. Um, so what we can do, we need to export more content from the West to Belarus. We just have to inflate Belarus with Western content. And the basic thing we have to do before to translate it to clear, understandable language. And if we translate it to Belarusian language, we um, solve two problems. Build a national identity, we are uh, strengthening the resistance uh, to Russian culture, uh, to, to Russian influence, mal-influence, and uh, we expose them to other narratives, other ideas. And it works both with serious political content or news content, analytics, and entertainment. So what we lack in Belarus is infotainment, edutainment, all the content that can help us reach um, young people and, uh, and seniors. Um, very low media literacy. Digital literacy is quite good, it's quite uh, high, but people don't know, can't differentiate uh, sources, can't check information, they don't know why uh, they shouldn't care about fake news, etc. So all these basic things, which are like pretty obvious here, they are very new to Belarus. Media literacy became the topic in Belarus only like last year, uh, when even um, even on the government level, ministries and Lukashenko's administration began talking about fake news. But for them, fake news, like Lukashenko's ideologist, like a few days ago there was a program, fake news that social networks. So you shouldn't go to social networks, you know, because there are a lot of fake news. So for them, basically, fake news, it's everything which is against them. Yes. I have a question, please. I have a question about, um, have you seen the data, public opinion data from young people in Belarus? Are yeah. they associating themselves more with Russia or Western societies? Is there any shifts that you see because of events in Ukraine or anything where young people try, they have access, more access to internet? Yeah, they yeah, try yeah. to understand all the, the events and maybe they want to travel west more. So have you seen anything in the data? Sure, sure. Even having, uh, having slides about it. So Levada Center made um, uh, very great research on Belarusian youth under 35, asking them about political views, um, geopolitical preferences, future of Belarus, values. So um, it's the same polarized as all other social demographic, social demographic groups in Belarus. So uh, until now, till till now, uh, Russia is the closest friend. Russia is the closest. So the question was posed like this: uh, Which country Belarus should orient on? Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, Russia still has like 20-25 percent, but uh, also Germany is high. United States is not very high, but you know there is Lithuania in the top, Poland in the top. There is no Ukraine. Um, because of different reasons. Uh, people are afraid of the um, uh, same scenario in Belarus. So, uh, but I think more and more Belarusians um, feel any good things about communism. They don't affiliate themselves with the uh, Soviet uh, leaders. They don't know who is Lenin. Um, they travel a lot. Uh, this is why there is a big distance between the current Lukashenko elites and young people, you know, who basically don't understand, don't remember how Lukashenko came to power and don't remember life before him. So for him, Lukashenko is like the old guy, you know, who is uh, 
um, who is there, who is like the, ra the rain, who is like the weather. You cannot influence him, he's just existing, you know, he's somewhere um, outside, I cannot change it. Um, but, but I'm pretty optimistic, thanks to the social networks, internet, travels, foreigners coming to Belarus. Now, um, foreigners can stay in Belarus up to 30 days. That increased communication, connections between people. I am very, I hope for the U.S. Embassy, which will be reopened this next uh, year, and which can have a lot of events, programs, projects within Belarus, and it's a great window of opportunity to make U.S. present uh, in the country and uh, uh, make real change there. Thank you. Thank you so much for attending. <laughs>